Before we start, this is one of the things I often invite is feedback on sermon things, and I got some during the week. And so it's worth sharing because if somebody asks a question, it's probably likely that others have thought the same. And so last week when we were going, going through the end of John chapter 21 and um, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me more than these? And, and I made a statement about how Peter never specifically answers to these and it's hard to figure out what the these could be, whether it's his old job as a fisherman or the other disciples. They're probably the two most likely. But I said something along the lines of if it's not clear in Scripture, it's probably not that important. Now, one thing what I was told that potentially could have been heard as being saying was that if something is not clear in the Scripture, don't worry about it, just keep going. As long as you get the main gist of it, don't worry about little details. Whereas if we believe that everything in the Scripture is God-given and is profitable, then that's what we should be modelling. And that's how one of the reasons why we preach through books of the Bible is not only because it's helpful, but it's also good modelling for how we should approach the Scriptures. Um, and so, I, so if I gave anyone the impression that when you're reading your Bible, if something doesn't make sense straight away, just skip on, don't worry about it. That wasn't my intent at all. Uh, the intent I was trying to make is don't spend all of your time looking into little details where there isn't a clear answer given um, at the expense of missing all the other things that are there around it. But acknowledging that everything that is in the scripture is there for a reason because God has put it there. So thank you people for feedback. I do like feedback and um, especially when I could come across as saying something that I haven't or, or didn't intend to come across as. And we talked about how um, after Joel we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians uh, and I said, I don't think I've actually done this at Eastgate, but I used to do it quite often at Mafra when I dealt with controversial things, and there are some controversial things that will come up when we go through 1 Corinthians, um, that there will be times after some of the sermons where there might be some controversial things to actually have open questions from the floor. The reason being is that some chapters are likely to raise questions, and if some person's got a question about something, probably lots of other people do too. Um, so it, to ask corporately allows things to be um, addressed and spoken to corporately too. There's two just pre-notes. We're starting this morning in the book of Joel. Let's come before the Lord in prayer that he might speak to us through his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that all of your word is profitable. We thank you that there is not a single page or a single verse in your scripture where we cannot turn and receive things which are for our good, that show us something of your glorious, wonderful character. Lord, we acknowledge that Joel may not be a book that people read particularly often, or maybe even that the churches preach on particularly often. But as we recognise it as your word, we look forward and anticipate that we will see something more of who you are and your good purposes for this book remaining in the scriptures. And so teach us that we might open our eyes and have our hearts turned to you through our time together. 
We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as you've heard the reading, you might think, oh, that's not really a Mother's Day message, is it? I mentioned last week that in 12 years of pastoral ministry, I've given one Mother's Day sermon and zero Father's Day sermons. It's not because we don't value mums. In fact, every single person is here because they had one. Whether they were a good mum or a bad mum, they still brought them into this world. But we are Eastgate Bible Church. We are interested in proclaiming the whole full counsel of God and we allow the full counsel of God to determine what we preach. And because God created mums, because God values mums and motherhood, it's not surprising that as you preach your way through the scriptures, you will come across times where God speaks and addresses those things rather than just do it once a week on a particular calendar day. But then someone might say, yeah, I get that, but you've just started a new series. You could have chosen something more encouraging, a nicer passage. I want to say a word of warning about thinking like that. I think we should be really, really careful about using languages like good passage, bad passage. Because the entirety of the scripture is the word of God. To label any section of it a bad passage, an unhelpful passage, says something about the character of God that you think that sometimes God is not good or not helpful or not profitable. And I don't think any of us would like to level that sort of charge towards our wonderful God. Instead, I would encourage us to think when we look at a passage which is hard to hear, and there are passages that are hard to hear, to ask, how do I see the display of his goodness through the hard word that he brings to us? Now, when I first chose the book of Joel, I was a little bit unsure. Was that a right decision, wrong decision? But I can tell you, the more that I've read this in the last few weeks over and over, the more it's been a joy and the more I'm looking forward to spending some time together in this book. Now it is a, has got a timeless gospel message in it. If you've ever read it through, and I'd encourage you if you haven't read it recently, to read it right through from start to finish. It's only a short book. It's only got three chapters. And you'll see the essential gospel elements all the way through it. Of sin, of judgment, of mercy, of calling a people to God his redemption you'll also see some very familiar elements as you work your way through the book of Joel you'll get into chapter 2 and you go oh I've seen this bit that gets quoted in in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost or if you're from a church tradition where they've done all the the services leading up to Easter and for Christmas and those types of things you'd recognize chapter 2 verses 12 to 19 because in most lectionaries you'll find that um, Ash Wednesday they read Joel chapter 2 verses 12 to 19. Even a famous line that we read about in Acts chapter 2 and Romans chapter 10. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved comes from the book of Joel. 
So today, our message is open your eyes and turn your hearts. We're going to look at elements regarding the background of Joel, the background information. I'm not having any luck here, Matt. The call to open your eyes in verses 1 to 7, reacting to what the things that we see in verses 8 to 12, turning your hearts to God in 13 to 20, and wrapping up with the good news of the bad news. Now, each time we start a new book in the Bible, there are certain questions that we ask that help us to understand the material that we're looking at. Questions like, who is writing? Who are they writing to? What's going on at the time that they're writing? Um, when? What, what sort of time frame was this taking place? Now, some of those questions are really easy to answer and others are not so easy. Some of the details are very plainly put there in the book and some of them, there's not enough specifics placed in there. The author of the book is not at all difficult to come to. You look, Joel, the word of the Lord came to Joel. But we don't actually know too much about who Joel is other than the content of this book. His name sort of is a putting together of two words, effectively meaning Yahweh is God. We know the name of his father. But again, other than the content of this book, we don't know a great deal about Joel. We presume that he's in Judah, possibly even in Jerusalem. He's quite familiar with the the functions and workings of the priesthood and within the temple. But outside of the content of the book, there's not too much we know about Joel himself. But what's far more important than maybe information about Joel himself is what we're told in that opening verse. This is the word of the Lord that came to Joel. Joel, as a prophet, is communicating a word which comes entirely from God. But there's not too many historical references throughout this book that make it really easy to pinpoint the dating of the book. In fact, scholars vary anything from the reign of Joash in 9th century BC up to any time until about the middle of the 4th century, about 343. It can't be any more recent than that. Now, personally, I'm inclined towards like a 4th or 5th century BC dating for the following reasons. There isn't a reference to an immediate threat from any surrounding nations. So we're presuming post-exile they've come back and returned. A lot of the references to the temple practices and the priesthoods kind of imply an existence that a second temple is erect and standing and functioning, which was finished in 515 BC. There's no references to any kings within there. There's a reference to Tyre and Sodom in chapter 3, verse 4, in connection with with Philistia. Um, But that was destroyed by Artaxerxes III um, in 343 BC. So it's got to be before that such time. So I'm presuming post-exile, some have returned back to the land. The temple has been rebuilt. There's no immediate 
threat from surrounding armies. Well, when I say there's no immediate threat, what we read in chapter 1 was there was a very real threat. There was a major locust plague. A plague unlike anything they had seen before that demanded people open their eyes to the situation. Now we know the whole word of God comes from God. There's not a single page of the Bible that is not God's word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and profitable. But when verse 1 tells us the word of the Lord came to Joel, doesn't make it any more God's word than any other part of scripture, but it does tell us that Joel is uniquely aware that what he is conveying is a message he has directly received from God. Joel is not just saying, well, here's this big locust plague, this is what has happened, and this is my opinion of why it has happened. He has said, what I'm doing here is God has spoken, he has told us why this happened, what is happening, and what we should do in response. When God speaks, you listen. And it's pretty clear he wants to have undivided attention. We see two similar phrases in that second verse. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Now this term for elders can either mean like leaders of a particular position or it can just mean people who are older or senior citizens, if you want to word it that way, which I think probably fits the context and the question that gets raised after a little bit better than those of a, a, an official position. The question is this, has anything like this, in other words, have you ever seen anything like this locust plague in your life or in the life of your forefathers? Now, the reason why I say the elderly would probably be a better translation or understanding of this term elders, is A, because of the question, they are the people most likely to know. They've had the longest life experience to answer whether or not they've seen something like this. But also, too, they had a role that functioned in society of passing down the traditions to the younger. So they would be, have better understanding of the things that have gone and taken place in the days of their forefathers. But it's not just those who were alive at that time who needed to take note. No, he says, tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. That's quite a familiar phrase where we see in the scriptures, you should tell these things to your children, to your children's children, and so on and so forth. Usually when we see those phrases, it's talking about some of God's great salvific actions. Like when God redeemed a people out of Egypt. But on this occasion, what he wants to tell to your children, your children's children, and to all generations, is an act of judgment unlike anything they had ever seen before. Now judgment isn't a popular theme in the world today. There are even some spheres within Christian circles where people think, nah, not our God. 
Our God is loving. He wouldn't do anything judge to, to rebuke or to punish. Yet remember, all of the Bible is God's word. The word of the Lord came to Joel. This same God, creator and sustainer of all things, has brought this destruction on the land and all of, all of the creation within that land. And he doesn't say, guys, keep this a secret. This is my dirty little secret that I've done this. He says, tell it to your children. Tell it to your children's children. I want everybody to know and to remember this. The gravity of what transpired and the effect, what they need to pass on, we see a little bit of that in verses 3 to 7, but especially verse 4. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. Now apparently Hebrew's got nine different words for locust, so clearly they're really popular. And as a result of that, people think, is there differences and meanings? Do, are they talking about different life cycle stages, the different species? Which, from people who look at this stuff, they say, well, at best that's probably just a guess. I think more than anything, this piling up of terms is to intensify the description of the extent of the damage that took place. There are three senses, all with what this one left, this one took, to show the, the extent to which everything had been affected and damaged by these locusts. It was significant. It's even described as being like a nation or an army that has come against them. Or in verse 16, like a lion in its teeth who has ripped them apart. Even though locusts don't have teeth, but just the sort of the severity of what has taken place. But note the language of what has been damaged. You notice the repeat of my land, my vines, my figs. It's God's own creation that has suffered. The land that he had given to them. The fruit and produce that he blessed them with. Possibly even some imagery of the, the vines. How he often spoke of the nation of Israel as my vine. Or Jesus spoke of, of the national Israel as a fig tree that had been cursed in the Gospels. As a consequence of Judah's sin, all of God's creation was suffering. Now what seems a little bit strange, you think, why do the drunkards get the first attention? Was God the most unhappy with the drinkers that he had to have a go at them first? It could just be because they are the ones probably most oblivious to what's going on. Not only are the ones most oblivious to what's going on, but one of the first who are going to take note about it when you've got no grain, no, no grapes, no figs, they're not going to have any grog very soon. They're going to notice very quickly that things aren't working out the way they want them to. It's going to be like Facebook on Good Friday when everyone says, does anyone know we can buy alcohol today? Every year that comes up. 
And so they didn't realise it happens on every single day that Good Friday, that the bottle shops are not open. None of these things, the vines, grain or fig, it's gone. The devastation was broad-reaching. All of creation had been affected. This had got the attention of everyone, even those who up until this point in time probably were reasonably oblivious of what was going on. So how will and how should they react to what they see? The call to lament is not just a call to lament your circumstances. It's not just to lament, oh, look what the locusts have done. Look at what what things we no longer have. Look at how it's impacted our day-to-day living. Lament the sin and rebellion that necessitated God to act in such swift judgment. Now, at this point, someone might ask, Did God send this? I didn't really pick up on that much as we read Joel chapter 1. Is it just maybe a a natural disaster and and this is how Joel's decided to apply it? Well, we've already been told God is the one who's given this message. We have the language of the day of the Lord throughout the book of Joel, including in verse 15 of chapter 1. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and the destruction of the Almighty, it comes. But also, there are other clues. In chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, there is a call from God saying, return to the Lord. It makes no sense to call the people to return to the Lord if they've never departed from the Lord. While the specifics of their sin are not mentioned, there's some pretty reasonable clues left behind. Maybe even Joel's name, Yahweh is God, is a reminder to them that who is their God. Maybe the call to return to the Lord is a sign that potentially they had, as they'd done so often throughout their history, gone and served other gods. But we are given a very graphic depiction of what a fitting lament should look like. Joel says, Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. So he says, Like a betrothed woman who laments her husband who dies before their wedding day. Remember, Old Testament betrothal, very different than our engagement. In our culture, if you get engaged, you change your mind, you just tell them you've changed your mind and you sell your ring on Marketplace or eBay. You had to either die or get a divorce to get out of betrothal. There's a picture of God's covenant children lamenting like they could lose their groom. Remember when the covenant was given? There was both blessing for obedience and there was curses for disobedience. We read about those in Deuteronomy 28, which included, not surprisingly, things like locusts, effects on the land, 
on the vines, on the grain, on the fruit. So rather than a bride dressed in white, enthusiastic, looking forward to them, Marriage being consummated. He says, lament in sackcloth, which was made from black goat hair and mourn. Not just a few of them. It seems to be a for all of the people. Lament and mourn your rebellion against God. It's more than just a loss of crops, a loss of food, In verse 9 we see your grain and drink offering has been cut off from the house of the Lord. Now the grain and drink offering was part of the the offerings, the whole burnt offerings that took place in both the morning and in the evening that were a necessary feature for a holy God to dwell amongst an unholy people. And because of the devastation of these locusts, even these acts in which they could have fellowship and worship of God were being affected. The priests likewise are called to mourn, unable to serve in their function because of the things available to them, not getting the excess of some of the sacrifices that they would normally get because things were not available. The farmers were called to wail as their fruit and their produce were decimated. It is affecting all of the people. It's affecting their livelihoods. It's affecting the land. It's affecting their worship. It's no surprise that in verse 12 we're reminded their gladness and their joy are gone. Do not kid yourself into believing that your sin is harmless and goes unnoticed. There's a very good reason why God says, remember what I have done. Pass it on to all generations. Tell your grandkids about this. Sin is never to be celebrated, tolerated. We should lament our sin, not entertain it. Lamenting, mourning, wailing, all of these are good and fitting. But the emotion and the outward expression of the emotion is not enough unless hearts are turned to God. Now every single mother who's got more than one child will have seen a time when their kid says sorry to the other kid for something they've done, only to find them repeating that same action over and over and over again. They might have even had tears when they said sorry to their sibling. But if your heart isn't changed the behaviour will never change, regardless of how emotionally you might have expressed your regret for your actions. So there you go, I've got mums in there, it's officially a Mother's Day sermon now. But as God, through Joel, calls the people for repentance, he doesn't begin broadly. He begins with the priests. Now the priests, their role was to shepherd God's covenant people into covenant faithfulness, which would include confronting people about their sin, which clearly they had not. Maybe they were no better than the rest of the people themselves. 
Maybe they were every single bit as guilty. So repentance had to begin with the priests in order that they could lead the nation in a national repentance. It was to be a fervent and humbling process for them also. Like the virgin trading the white wedding gown for black sackcloth, they would trade their white priestly garments for the black sackcloth as well. They would come into the house of the Lord in repentance and mourning day and night. They would call the people to a fast and to a solemn assembly as they would gather together in the temple. Possible because only a small remnant did return that they could all gather together in that one place at one time. But as they gathered, they were united with one purpose, one hope, expressed in verse 14, that they would cry out to the Lord. There was nowhere else to go. There is no other name in which we can call upon. And alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes, is not the food cut off from before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. Now you're probably very familiar with the term day of the Lord because it gets used throughout the Bible a lot. And not even just referring to one specific event, it gets used in lots of different contexts. Zephaniah and Ezekiel use it to speak about God bringing the northern army of Babylon to to come against Jerusalem. Isaiah in chapter 13 uses it to speak of the imminent destruction of that same northern army of the Babylonians. Obadiah uses it in the context of judgment of all nations. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 2 to 11 uses it to speak of the final judgment of all. In Joel, there's almost elements of all of those things hinted at. They've already received a great judgment unlike anything they've seen before in the locusts. There's the language of the judgment to come against the Babylonians in 2.20 and also against all nations in chapter 3. But all of this has taken place. Everything that they've seen that has been decimated, that has taken away from their, their worship, their livelihood, their food, all of this comes down to one thing. Sin. The effects were widespread. Sin is never private. Sin is never narrow in its impact. Destroyed their crops, their fruit, their seed. The storehouses are empty. Elements of temple worship had to come to a complete end. Even the livestock are desperate for food. Sin has always affected all of creation. In fact, all of, the, all of the problems we see in creation, we go back to the, to the fall and see where they took, came from and took place and have continued to abound. Romans chapter 8, Paul speaks of all creation being subject to futility as a result of sin and are eagerly awaiting a redemption of the created order. It's funny, we're a couple of weeks away from an election And there's so much talk about environmental issues. 
Everyone's talking about the created order, what we can do. But none of them actually talking about the root cause of why the created order is the way it is. In fact, the, usually the parties that focus so much more on those things are the ones who least, less likely want to listen to what God has to say. Uh, the Greens. We do get to see something of Joel's heart and Joel's prayer in verses 19 to 20. He says, To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks have dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Isn't that a wonderful but also uncomfortable picture? Even the beasts of the field pant for you while the covenant children of God had turned their back upon their God that were not longing for them even in a way that could be compared to Bessie the cow. Never be found as God's children without a hunger and a thirst for God. Let the natural instincts of your body teach you every single day. When you naturally get hungry and you satisfy it with food, when you naturally get thirsty and you satisfy it with drink, may you have a daily hunger and thirst for God that takes you to him and draws you near to him. Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 42 that we'll sing shortly after this message, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so, my, so, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So when the people have strayed from God, he opens their eyes to see the situation. He lets them feel the weight and gravity of their sin that they might cry out to him and be restored. There is a good news in the bad news. So was it an ideal Mother's Day message? Is it all doom and bad news? The people rebel against God, they get punished. Should we read a passage like this and think, well, every time something bad happens in this world, I now know that it's God judging us for our sin. Is that a conclusion we should come to? Well, it certainly was in Joel's day. There's no doubting here when we got a phrase that says, the word of the Lord came to Joel and, and explains it in such terms. But what about when Jesus in Luke chapter 13 speaks about the Tower of Siloam falling and crushing 18 people? He asked the question, was it because they were any worse than anyone else? No. Or when the disciples ask about this blind man in John chapter 9, saying, why is this guy blind? Is it because of his sin or because of his parents? And Jesus says, neither. That the works of God might be displayed in him. So you can't just jump down and say, bad things happen, this is God's judgment against sin. But there are occasions, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, 
where it is clearly stated that people are affected in particular ways by God because of their sin. Now, it wasn't all that long ago that Israel Folau made some famous statements about how he claimed that the bushfires in Australia was God's judgment against um, the marriage plebiscite and the same-sex vote. Izzy, unlike Joel, could not say with authority, the word of the Lord came to Israel Folau and this is why these things transpired. At best, he was sharing his opinion of why those things transpired. Now, we know there are lots of times where it is really hard to discern what is God's judgment against sin, what is a natural flow on of of circumstances. Like if you live in a floodplain, your house floods, you're probably not going to say, oh, that's because of the judgment of God against my sin. There's some natural things that just happen in particular ways. Or is it just a result of sin in general? That sin has impact upon many things. You can't jump on the conclusion every time, this has happened to me or to us or to this nation because God is judging me, us or the nation for our sin. But you can conclude he might be judging for our sin and acting against us. We can conclude he'd be justified if he was. And we can conclude this is a good time to examine my heart, whether it was his intent or not. Let me use this as a reminder. Is there anything that I need to repent and bring before God? Because if the calamity serves to draw you nearer to God, then the bad news becomes good news. If the bad news points you to a better news, the bad news is not only good, it might actually be a necessary news to lead you towards the good. If being confronted with the sinfulness of sin leads you to a sin saviour, that's a good thing. Regardless of how uncomfortable it might feel to be exposed for your sin to be known. If feeling convicted about sin while sitting in a church service leads to you bringing that before God in repentance, to be putting off the old self, putting on the new as enabled by the Spirit, then that uncomfortable feeling was worth it. It is good. There is no good news of Christ crucified for sinners if you don't hear and realise that you are a sinner. There is no good news of God's plan of sanctification, of growing you to maturity without highlighting a need to put to death the deeds of the flesh. In this action in which they'd never seen anything like it before, God says, look at this, remember it, pass it on. It's a reminder to us all. God acts against sin. 
While they've never seen anything like that in their day, there is coming a day when God will act in judgment against all of humanity. It'll be eternal, it'll be final. Jesus put it in these terms, either one will go to eternal life or other to everlasting punishment. Yet God sent his one and only son to bear his wrath against sin. That all who would look upon him to place their faith in him would receive forgiveness and would escape that day and there would be a day of great rejoicing where they are united to their saviour who has rescued them. The bad news of sin and judgment might not make us feel warm and fuzzy but it is the necessary foundation for us to see the beauty of grace and mercy and the wonderful gift of salvation that Christ offers us all. Let us come before God in prayer. Lord, we confess that whether we articulate it or not, there are times that we're not comfortable talking about particular aspects in the Bible. And we repent of that. There is nothing that you have declared and made known that we should be ashamed of, that we should want to minimise. Even in an act like this, which you have said is worse than anything they had seen before, and you say, don't keep that secret, tell everyone. God, we thank you that in your patience you have waited in order that people might repent and turn and come to, to faith in Christ and know his salvation. Lord, not only for the recognition of, of our sinful state to come to the Saviour, but also to recognition of our ongoing sin, ways in which we dishonour you, that, Lord, we might see how detestable it is in your sight, that we might hate our sin the same way in which you do, that we might return to the Lord with all of our heart, and receive in full your forgiveness, your grace. And display the manifestation of your transforming work by the power of the gospel. For this we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.